Welcome to the Global Governance Podcast, where we explore the future of governance. Each episode will look at a different global issue and how governance plays a key role in its solution. From climate change to gender equality, from corruption to peace and security, we invite experts to explore a thought-provoking game of what if and why not, positing a world in much closer international cooperation. Dr. Daly received a BA from Knox College, a JD from the University of Illinois College of Law, and a PhD from the Rand Graduate School of Policy Studies and Rand UCLA Center for Post-Soviet Studies. He has served as a speechwriter, advisor, or co-author for Congressman Dennis Kuchlinich and John Anderson, and U.S. Senators Harris Wofford and Alan Cranston. He has published essays on abolishing nuclear weapons, ending genocide forever, and reinventing the United Nations. He's the author of the book Apocalypse Never, Forging the Path to a Nuclear Weapons-Free World. Today, he serves as Director of Policy Analysis at the NGO Citizens for Global Solutions, founded in 1947 as the United World Federalists. Um, Tad, thank you very much for accepting our invitation to participate in this podcast. You're welcome, Augusto. Really delighted to be engaged in conversation with a with a, a major thinker about the human future. Thank you, um, Tad. I know that you are working on a big book about the history and future of the idea of a world republic, and we'll talk about that later on in the podcast. But to get the conversation started, if you could tell us a little bit about your first book, Apocalypse Never. Uh, sure, Augusto. Thanks so much. Um, we, Yes, you and I are here today to talk mostly about global governance and the even bigger idea of, of, of a world government someday. Um, but uh, a good deal of my background after getting my PhD from the RAND program in 1995 was focused on nuclear weapons and nuclear disarmament. And uh, so that is my, my the one book I have under my belt, uh, Apocalypse Never. Um, and it's really about the vision of nuclear weapons abolition. Um, I got into this because in 1945, uh, these things were invented. Um, I'm not that old, but, uh, you know, that's a real turning point uh, in human history. It was the first time uh, that the human race came, be, became capable of bringing about its own extinction uh, with its own hands. And that seemed to me like a pretty important uh, task uh, to focus on as, an, as a scholar and as an activist. And it also was the great legacy of the Cold War, which of course ended in uh, 1991. So I wrote this book that is very much focused on the many different kinds of nuclear perils, such as nuclear terrorism, such as nuclear accident, such as nuclear crisis mismanagement, such as conscious, intentional, rational use. Um, all those have been dangers uh, for 77 years now, and they continue to be dangers. Um, and I, I, and this is kind of the, the segue to what you and I are planning to talk about today, because I, a number of other books have done what I just described and therefore made the case for abolition. Um, I think if there's any original contribution in the book. It's very much two or three chapters that are focused on the architecture of a nuclear weapon free world, um, really trying to envision the mechanisms of enforcement and adjudication and verification that would have to uh, be part of uh, some kind of a post abolitionist world. I am a big, we're not here to talk about this today. I'm a fan of the relatively new treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. Uh, which I'm sure many of your listeners know about. But the TPNW is unfortunately lacking in that. It is a very short document. It just says nuclear weapons are illegal, uh, but it doesn't really try to lay out the real mechanisms for how we would get to abolition and then maintain abolition. Um, and the key element of that is that countries are going to have to give up some of their sovereignty 
this was a crucial part of all the original visions at the beginning of the cold, sorry, the beginning of the atomic age, the Baruch report, the Atchison, Baruch plan, sorry, the Atchison Lilienthal report, uh, the, the work from the United Nations Atomic Energy Commission. They all said some kind of reduction of national sovereignty over nuclear matters is the only possible solution to the nuclear peril. And that the notion of nations giving up their sovereignty to serve both their individual national interests and common human interests is what led me to the conversation that we're having today and my, my focus on and interest in global governance and the big idea of world government. Very interesting, Todd. And I guess your book remains relevant, especially in today's international context, when, as you know, there is loose talk of the possible use of nuclear weapons, you know, to settle, um, uh, you know, land disputes or border disputes. Um, I'm thinking, I'm thinking of Ukraine in particular. I, I would like my, I would like my book to become irrelevant someday, but it still unfortunately remains every bit as relevant as when it came out 10 years ago. In a recent article you wrote, you analyze Dante's early vision of a world government in his not-so-renowned work, The Monarchia, which, as I understand, at least in the copy that I have, um, the title of that was translated into English as On World Government, a most unusual title for a track written, uh, what, eight centuries ago? Seven, let's say seven, because Dante died exactly 701 years ago last month. Okay. As you mentioned in that article, Dante proposes some form of a global governance mechanism to banish war from the human condition forever because he sees war as, as being utterly destructive of human welfare. However, as you can imagine, the establishment of such a governance structure faces multiple obstacles. What do you think are some of the most pressing challenges paralyzing the process of building a sustainable and functional global governance structure? Well, thank you. That's a big question, challenges uh, and obstacles. Um, I think the first thing I would say, uh, Augusto, is um, that global governance innovation, let alone this big idea of world government, is, is just it's not on the radar screen. It's not part of the international policy debate. This has been my deep frustration ever since I sort of uh, got into this arena. Um, even, even professionals in the field, you know, again, I have a PhD in international policy analysis. I've been involved in the foreign policy, the American foreign policy community uh, since, since, since arriving at RAND about three decades uh, ago. Um, but even professionals in the field don't really talk much uh, about these ideas. They're just, they're, 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 they're not part of the debate. They, again, even professionals in the field, let alone just sort of the ordinary public, and, I, and I'm even talking about the informed public, people who follow politics, they just take the Westphalian sovereign state system as a given. They take the structure of the United Nations, which they usually know hardly anything about, as a given. It doesn't appear to it doesn't occur to people that there are other possible ways to design an international organization. That's one of the biggest challenges, Augusto. I think you and I and the people that we work with in this small arena, we've somehow got to break out of our tiny uh, little circles and make the debate about redesigning our mechanisms of global governance somehow part of the larger international policy debate. That's the first thing I'd say. I think the second thing I'd say quickly is that, unfortunately, the units, as you know this very well, the units of international politics are national states, uh, 193 member states of the United Nations, I think is the number. And national states pursue their national interests. Um, that's a theme that I think we will discuss many times uh, today. Uh, we, we are trying to create a United Nations you and I and others, that somehow addresses the larger common human interest, the global public good. But there is no real mechanism to do that yet. The, the, the actual actors, again, the units, 
are national states which pursue their national interests. And, and somehow we've got to convince actual policymakers, which of course are national policymakers, to somehow contemplate the larger human interest. And the final thing I'll say, Augusto, I just, I really do want to put in a plug for your book. Uh, remind, is it called Global Governance and Global Institutions? Global Governance and the Emergence of Global Institutions for the 21st Century is the full title. Thank you. I left out the word emergence, yes, by you, you and Maya Groff and Arthur Dahl. And it is a fabulous contribution. I will admit that I'm only about halfway through it, reading it uh, in, in, in the PDF. Um, but it's just, yeah, your book I, I, is really one of the premier works that really grapples with, uh, on the one hand, a, a real detailed look at the kinds of redesigns of our global governance and our global global governance mechanisms and our global institutions. And that, it, again, is trying to get it uh, on the radar screen so it is part of the larger conversation. It's a trem tremendous contribution, and I just really want to Well, applaud. thank you. Thank you for that very nice, warm endorsement. But let's go back to your article. Um, in that same piece, you do a very interesting exercise. You invite the reader to fast forward to the year 2,722, and imagine that humanity has been able to resolve uh, some of our greatest transnational threats, such as climate change, um, through the coming together of, of humankind under the same sort of spiritual, political, and constitutional umbrella. Now, let me, let me add... Um, uh, something to your, a new dimension to your exercise. If we were to rewind from 2,722 back to the present, 2022, what do you think would be the some of the milestones that humanity must have hit over the next two to three decades to substantially move in, in the direction that you outline, you know, for, for the long-term future? And and I have deliberately narrowed the time frame because, as you know, climate scientists are telling us that we do not, in fact, have several centuries to confront the pressing immediate consequences of climate change. Well, OK, uh, you, you you don't want me to talk 700 years. You want me to talk 20 or 30 years. And I, and I certainly don't blame you. Um, just a word, though, about long-term thinking. Um, you know, I picked that figure 700 years because, uh, again, it has been exactly 700 years last year uh, since the passing of Dante. But I, I really do think that there is a role for talking in longer, larger, longer-term uh, timeframes uh, like that. I, to, if, to refer to my, the last question that we discussed, um, I think that's one of the real vehicles that we can use to get people to just simply expand their imagination and to envision the social and political evolution of the human species rather than just talking about the headlines of the day. But that said, now I will address your challenge to let's talk about milestones in the next 20 or 30 years. I certainly agree 100% that climate, uh, I, I don't see how anybody can disagree with it, it, it is an, it's an immediate emergency and we must do something about it sooner. We may not be around in 700 years. Um, and our own contribution, if I may, yours and mine and the people who work in this arena, I would say are really, uh, it really falls into two uh, realms. Uh, one is we need decision-making mechanisms larger than the nation state. You know, Greta Thunberg, uh, whoever I'm sure every one of your listeners knows about uh, and her her legions of young people who are putting this incredible passion and, and, and the, uh, into the climate emergency. Um, they've done a terrific job of mobilizing people. I, I, I hope we can somehow get them to focus on global governance stuff uh, as a tool to address climate change. But so far, when when they actually talk about policy initiatives, it's there, there's young people from all over the world, but all they have to do is go back to their own countries. The only option that they have is to a Japanese young person would go and lobby the government of Japan to do more 
about climate. And, and that is because there are no real larger mechanisms. Um, that is my point one. My second point is, and this is something that I do think you get into in, in your terrific book, the human community needs some alternative to treaty making among sovereign states. Uh, all the climate stuff since Rio in 1992 has been just trying to come up with multilateral treaties and uh, uh, agreements uh, between 190 some states. And the problem with that is one, it always ends up with the lowest common denominator. Uh, you know, people can sort of work it down uh, to a level that's acceptable if you want to get everybody to sign in. Two, because there is no international lawmaking authority, this is entirely voluntary. Um, if, if country X says, no, not interested in joining, oh, the Paris Climate Agreement, then they don't join. And there's no legal mechanism to require them to join. Um, and the best example of that, without dwelling on it too much, is what happened in the American election in 2016. The, the, the Obama administration, of course, joined the Paris Climate uh, Agreement. And then one of the first things that President Trump did uh, in 2017 was to withdraw. Um, and so the United States was not a participant. And the final problem with treaty making is that there are no consequences for noncompliance because there is no mechanism for enforcement. People sometimes use the word binding in this context. And I submit that until we create the kind of new global governance mechanisms that you and I want to create, the word binding is essentially meaningless. You know, your comments reminded me that in the period 1942-43, leading to the uh, drafting of the UN Charter, the initial vision for the kind of UN that we wanted to have was, in fact, unfair to the United Nations, um, the ability to do some, to have some legislative powers, especially in the area of peace and security, that would be binding upon its member countries. But as you know, that never happened for reasons we will not go into, which are interesting historically and which we address in our book. Um, Tad, you have dedicated a great part of your career to researching and writing about war and peace. For many, and the concept of peace is simply the absence of war. Uh, we're not killing each other as we did with industrial scale efficiency during the past uh, 100 years. But this does not mean that we have established the conditions for the flourishing of human civilization. Let me introduce a personal note here. Last week I was in Berlin and I was thoroughly impressed with the honesty with which the German people have internalized in their history their monuments, their collective memory, the horrors and madness of Hitler's deluded, paranoid, and ultimately self-destructive adventure. Can you share with us a vision of peace that is not just the absence of war, but a more positive, creative concept that involves actual human progress and the advancement of civilization? Well, Augusto, that is a, a terrifically important question. And it's something, again, referring to some of our earlier points that I think not, not too many people think much about. They just, yes, they assume that peace means the absence of war. <laughs> if, if people aren't shooting at each other, um, then that, that, that's what peace is. But, but you and I know that peace means something a lot more than that. And I have a very specific answer. I, I think a lot of people are going to say, oh, yes, well, let's talk about a positive vision of peace where, oh, people are cooperating and collaborating uh, rather than competing. And, and of course, I'm all for that sort of touchy-feely answer. But I have a very specific answer. The, the single most important concept behind the idea of a world state a world republic, a world federation, a United States of the world is what it was called by Winston Churchill and Victor Hugo and Carl Sandburg, among many others. The single biggest concept is not just that that could bring about the abolition of war, but it could also bring about the elimination of armies, the elimination of permanent standing military forces. And arguably even more importantly, 
the elimination of permanent, continual, forever arms races between separate sovereign states. Um, If I can just talk for a second about China and America, uh, the two greatest powers uh, in the quote unquote greatest powers, certainly the greatest military powers in the world today. Um, A shooting war uh, is certainly far from impossible between China and the United States. But again, to get back to this international policy debate that never even talks about these ideas, the, the, the gallons of ink spilled on writing about future possible scenarios between China and America. The best case scenario is always that we go from here till, oh, the end of the present century, 2099, and somehow avoid a shooting war, somehow avoid ever getting into conflict, uh, again, violent conflict in the South China Sea or the East China Sea, or over Taiwan, or over some other issue. But I don't think that's the best case scenario, because even in that scenario, which again, all the foreign policy mainstream professionals sort of take as a given, each country is still spending close to a trillion dollars a year to defend itself against the other country. And that's the the Hobbesian state of nature that exists among states in an an, in an anarchic world and the big idea of a world republic is that someday the human race can evolve beyond tribes with clubs arming themselves against the other tribes with clubs forever until the end of time that is what hg wells called a new phase in human history if someday we can obtain it and i want us at least for today to aspire to it yes indeed you know, I'm an economist, as you know, uh, and uh, for me, um, when I think about the opportunity cost of uh, $2 trillion of, of annual defense spending in the world in terms of, uh, you know, reductions in poverty, uh, lightening the, the burdens of malnutrition, and, uh, you know, addressing the very serious development challenges that that we face is really mind boggling. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me of that term opportunity cost in, in this context. It's the quintessential use of the yeah. term, I would argue. You know, it's interesting, but the IMF, which which tends to be very careful with the use of language, uh, refers to military spending as unproductive expenditures. Um, because, in fact, you get very little out of them. Um, you know, think a, a small developing country in Africa or in Latin America modernizing its air force. You know, what does it really get out of it? Uh, there are countries in Latin America that have not been at war for the last 100 years. So it's really a waste of resources on a grand scale. Um, you have been involved with Citizens for Global Solutions for several years, and the organization celebrated its 75th uh, birthday this year. How has the scope of work of this organization evolved since its uh, very beginning? Uh, trace for us a little bit of its history and how it sees the priorities for the for the years ahead. Well, thank you so much for asking about the organization. Yes, I've been very, even though I've had a number of other professional gigs, I have been deeply and consistently involved with this organization. Citizens for Global Solutions, since I joined as a college student in the uh, in the 1990s. Um, one reason that I have so much hope, uh, frankly, Augusto, for, for the work that you and I uh, are doing in this realm is that for a time, a brief but luminescent time, <clears throat> uh, pretty much, let's call it five or six years after the Second World War, there was a real movement a genuine political and social movement about the kind of things that we're discussing today. Not a movement for peace, not a movement even for global governance innovation, a movement for the establishment of a federal republic of the world. And this organization uh, called the United World Federalists, when it was first founded, was really one of the the real lead actors in that. And let me just give you a couple of examples. Um, I guess you mentioned Harris Wofford, who became a great friend and mentor uh, to me. as a brilliantly charismatic teenage boy, he founded something called the Student Federalists before the Second World War was even o- over and got thousands of, I think the number is 300 chapters on high school and college campuses, uh, several thousand students, just 
young people filled with zealousness about this idea of abolishing war through the establishment of a world republic. And Wofford even wrote a book called The Road to the World Republic. Um, one particular thing about that that I really found for, out from him and interrogated him about is that young women were deeply involved in that. They were not just sort of you know, making coffee and, and bringing papers to the young men. Uh, they were really very much ahead of their time, I believe. This is back in the 1940s. And let me just quickly throw in a plug for a book by Gil Jonas, J-O-N-A-S, called One Shining Moment. I bet even you haven't heard of it, Augusto, but it is a history of the student world federalists back in the in the, the, the 1940s. Um, there were there were rallies in Chicago Stadium, um, uh, f full, full to capacity. Um, there was a committee at the University of Chicago called the Committee to Frame a World Constitution. There were, believe it or not, congressional hearings and a congressional resolution in 1949 that said the fundamental purpose Sorry, the fu fundamental foreign policy objective of the United States should be to transform the United Nations into a world federation with power sufficiently, with power sufficient to enact and enforce world law. And it turns out that this organization, uh, the United World Federalists, was the lead NGO which got those congressional hearings happening. I mean, that's inconceivable today that a single member of Congress would talk about such a thing. So I'm really kind of proud of that history. And in fact, the president of the organization at that time was a, a bright young man named Alan Cranston, who went on to become a four-term U.S. senator from California and my boss. And this brilliant young man, Harris Wofford, was involved in the founding and a number of really big name people like Claire Booth Luce, who was a congresswoman and the, the, the wife of the, uh, the owner of Time magazine. Uh, Oscar Hammerstein was one of uh, the great playwright was one of our founders. There were a number of actors, <clears throat> excuse me, number of actors like Betty Davis and Henry Fonda, a uh, couple of Supreme Court justices, Owen Roberts and William O. Douglas. Um, oh, and the first chair of the board of this organization was Albert Einstein. So the organization founded in 19, and it, excuse me, I, I probably shouldn't go into this too deeply, but founded in 1947, but really founded much before that because th what happened in 1947 was a merger of a good half dozen world government advocacy organizations that had been operating at least since the beginning uh, of the second world war um so in some ways it's a little bit painful to say but the high point of this organization and certainly of this movement was in those first five years or so after the second world war but the organization has continued to uh, exist uh, ever since then and um uh, at some points, we drifted away from the big idea of world government and just said, geez, that, that's just so far off the radar screen now that we just need to talk about world peace more amorphously. But about five years ago, the organization really recommitted itself to its original raison d'etre, which is the which is global governance, innovation today and the establishment of something like a federal republic of the world tomorrow. I cannot help thinking that perhaps the reason why the glory years of the World Federalists were, in fact, soon after the end of World War II, because it was at that time that we had fresh in our memories the death and the calamity and the destruction of World War II. And therefore, there was a willingness on the part of many people all over the world to, to rethink and to to try to reconceptualize the concept of international cooperation in a, in a more ambitious way. Um, Todd, two years ago, the, the world commemorated the 75th anniversary of the adoption of the UN Charter. And as great an achievement as, as it was at the time, nowadays, of course, our global institutions need to evolve to be able to address some of our greatest global challenges. My question to you is, what do you think would be some of the key components of a revision or a rethinking of the UN Charter that was adopted at the San Francisco Conference in 1945? Well, that's a, an excellent question, and uh, you will forgive me, I hope, for once again plugging your book because there's hardly any any better work out there that really addresses those 
sorts of UN reforms, those sorts of what I'd like to call medium-term global governance innovations. Um, there's three in particular that I think are uh, among the most important. Uh, one is funding. Uh, I think in your book, you go into that uh, very deeply. Um, the, the UN needs both more funding uh, to a level of funding that is adequate for the kind of transnational challenges it needs and more reliable funding. So it's not just what it is today, utterly dependent on voluntary contributions from national governments. Um, when national governments, sometimes when there's in the United States, there's a right wing uh, administration or a right wing uh, U.S. Senate, and they just say, oh, we're going to withhold our U.N. dues because we're pretty mad at the U.N. about something or another. And an organization can't function like that. The UN needs a real, both reliable and adequate. I think, Augusto, maybe you can tell me, uh, it seems, I haven't looked this up recently, but I think I read once that the entire budget of the United Nations is roughly equivalent to that of the New York City police and fire departments, which is just an astonishingly small number for the world organization dealing with all of our world problems. The, the second of my three uh, ideas, uh, UN reforms uh, that I want to get out on the table is a, a brilliant idea that's certainly not mine uh, of creating a UN parliamentary assembly. Um, that would be something far short of a real world parliament, but it would be a real step in that direction. The, the basic idea is at the United Nations today, all the delegates, ambassadors are appointed by executive branches uh, of their national governments. Um, there is no parliamentary component at all. And it's a simple idea. Let's create under Article 22 of the Charter, which provides a mechanism for creating, for the GA to create new bodies like this, something called a UN Parliamentary Assembly, where mechanisms would be devised for people, individuals now already sitting in oh, the Japanese Diet, the British House of Commons, the American Congress, the Nigerian National Assembly, parliamentarians to meet directly with each other and talk about transnational issues. Um, it would both dramatically expand the democratic character of the United Nations and give citizens a much more direct voice. Right now, I think the only thing that I as a, as a, as, as a human can do if I want to have some input into the United Nations is to either write a letter to President Biden or to write a letter to his UN ambassador, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. Uh, this UNPA would be a real step in democratizing the UN. And the third and final idea that has kind of faded in recent years, and I am a particular champion of it, is creating a standing UN peace force, uh, sometimes called a UN Rapid Deployment Force, sometimes a United Nations Emergency Peace Service. Um, people think they see these UN blue helmets from time to time and they think, oh, well, those are the, that's the UN military force. No, it's not. The UN doesn't have any kind of military force. Every time some kind of crisis erupts and, and we need some kind of peacekeeping mission, the United Nations Secretary General, has, after it gets authorized by the Security Council, has to beg and plead with individual nation states to contribute their own national forces. And this would be a standing force that could, sorry, it's, sorry, I, I just remembered something that Kofi Annan, uh, who of course was, was a, a previous UN Secretary General, said, this is like every time a fire breaks out, that's when you go and start building the fire department and recruiting firefighters. <laughs> Obviously not a very viable uh, mechanism. And, and I think the most important concept behind this is that it would give individual citizens all around the world uh, in the military realm the opportunity to volunteer to do more than just serve their country. They would have the opportunity to volunteer to serve the human race. And I think the line for such a force, for an opportunity to volunteer to serve humanity, would be very long indeed. And if I may, just one final thing on that, which is I wrote a pretty darn good article about this a couple of years ago in a Responsible Statecraft, which is from the heavyweight Quincy Institute think tank, and it's called An Army of Humanity to Fight Crimes Against Humanity. And I, I, I'll send it your way, and maybe you can link it as part of this podcast. Okay. Thank you, Todd. Thank you. Yes, um, you, you mentioned of the UN budget brought 
back to memory a very compelling statistic as we were doing this 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 uh, work. Um, if every con every member of the United Nations contributed 0.1% of GDP, which is uh, you know a very modest amount. Um, it will generate for the UN something like $90 billion per year, which is several times larger than the current budget of the, of the UN. So yes, we have great expectations about what the UN should be doing, but we don't give the organization the resources that it needs. And I think that this is one of the, one of the problems that we have uh, with the UN system today. Um, in your earlier remarks a few minutes ago, you, you mentioned uh, the kind of disappearance of an active debate about, um, you know, issues of global governance that you saw very dramatically in the aftermath of World War II. My question is, do you think that um, the pandemic in 2020, 2021, which really paralyzed the, the, the planet and the global economy, uh, do you think that against that background, there is more of a willingness today to talk about strengthening in the mechanisms of international cooperation? Uh, in other words, has the pandemic shifted the conversation in some way? Well, Aguso, I, um, I, I don't have a whole lot to say about the pandemic. I, uh, I, I, wish, it, I wish it had. I, I, I'm sorry to say that uh, I, I had high hopes in the spring of 2020. I mean, I was horrified, of course, by the, 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 this, this unprecedented, at least in our lifetimes, unprecedented uh, global pandemic. Um, but here we are now two and a half years later, since it, uh, close to three years, I guess, uh, in October. Here we are in October of 2022. And I, I don't know that it, that it really has. There, there's obviously that it really has expanded people's appetite as, as you were asking me about uh, for international cooperation, let alone global governance innovation. I really wish it had, and it should. Um, there's certainly super important ideas out there, like, like really redesigning the WHO so it would have real authority to enact public health measures globally, uh, to, to investigate what happened uh, in China. Um, there's huge issues of vaccine equity uh, and, and, and treatment equity, uh, you know, distrib distribution of things like Paxlovid, the treatment drug. Um, but they, they haven't been resolved very well. And I'm, I'm sorry to give you a despairing answer, but I, I feel like looking at this nearly three years on, as usual, nations have endeavored to serve their own interests. How about you, if I may? I mean, do, do you have some particular either optimism about the pandemic or global governance ideas uh, for addressing future pandemics, if I may <laughs> become the interviewer for a second? I think that in the early stages of the pandemic, when it was so intense and, uh, you know, so many countries, including in the, in the developed world, were coming under huge pressure, I had some hopes that perhaps it would create a, a kind of a point of inflection and that and that we would be willing to rethink some of our approaches to international cooperation. But, um, but I think you're right. I think that not much has happened, actually. And we are back to, back to normal, quote unquote. Uh, uh, CO2 emissions, which actually uh, fell in 2020, as the global economy recovered, are, are, are again rising. And, and so... Yeah, so it, it, it's, it, I don't think that the pandemic itself will have created the kind of momentum that you saw after World War II and that you described earlier on in such an interesting, interesting way, which is another way of saying that perhaps it will take a much bigger crisis you know, before we have that kind of 1945 moment, which then led so many people to, to broaden the scope of their perspectives and and, and at least to be willing to discuss, you know, more ambitious proposals for, for rethinking our global order. Uh, Tad, you call yourself a, a planetary patriot. Um, and some people, the organizations and so on, see the idea of a new global order and greater unity in world undertakings, uh, perhaps some 
uh, erosion of national sovereignty as, as a threat or as something to fear, um, um, you know, captured by the idea that perhaps it would involve the emergence of a big brother, uh, the deprivation of our liberties, and, and so on. Um, what do you think are the elements that can convert a na national patriot into a planetary patriot? Well, thanks uh, for that worthy challenge, Augusto. I am. Um, you've really asked two questions there, and let me let me just see if I can separate them. Um, one is the fear that new mechanisms of global governance, let alone a federal republic of Earth, will become some kind of an authoritarian, scary, monstrous superstate. And my response to that is not to just wave my hands and, and poo-poo that idea. And my response to that is to say, yes, it is a danger. It is possible. It's possible with any government and any government that we empower to govern us as individuals can, and in many cases in human history has, devolved into authoritarianism. Um, but we really just have to say that's not an argument for having no kinds of governance mechanisms at all. Um, we need to do all we can in the same way that we do on the national level. You know, ideas, my country is very imperfect uh, in so many ways, but the notion of separation of powers that was uh, developed by the framers of the American Constitution uh, in, in the late 18th century, the notion of federalism, um, having smaller political units within the larger political units. These are all models that we can extend to the world level uh, to try our best to come up with mechanisms of global governance, but fight against the, the possibility, which I admit is real, of it devolving into a tyranny. Einstein himself uh, uttered this. I, I think I have the quote at my fingertips. Uh, he said something like, do I fear that a world government would someday become a tyranny? Absolutely, I do, but I fear the permanent state of war uh, uh, within the human race even more so. So we, we have to compare it to the alternative. That, that it seems to me, is the first of what I, what I kind of heard was two questions. But the second is this notion of planetary patriotism. Um, and it's, I think it's possible, Augusto, to be both. I'm an American and I love my country and I want the best for my country, both domestically and in its behavior internationally. That's why I criticize my country so much and thank the gods that I live in a free country where I can still do that. But I think it's quite possible to both love one's country and love one's race, by which I mean, of course, the human race, and to love the planet as a whole and the circle of life uh, that the, uh, of, which, of which we are all a part. Uh, and in my experience, you know, I've been talking about this kind of thing for a long time. And when I talk about the United States of the world, people don't immediately embrace that idea. It's a complicated conversation. But many people do immediately embrace the notion of global citizenship and planetary patriotism and allegiance to humanity. They say, yeah, that's me. I, I feel that way. That, of course, you're right that our highest loyalty ought to be our loyalty to all of humankind and all of the circle of life from which we have emerged. And I think it's a terrific activist tool, uh, Augusto, that you know you and I have been on many Zooms in the past two or three years with dozens of other people working in this arena. And I rarely hear talk of this, about just appealing to people's innate identity, first and foremost, as Earthlings. And I really encourage us to do that a lot more in order to broaden our conversation. Yeah, indeed, indeed, I, I fully agree. You know, I I remember that in the early years of the American Republic, um, when the federal government was uh, was established as a as a new new level of, of of government, you know, with particular attributes on the monopoly of the use of force and and so on. There was a lot of fear that the federal government, the U.S. federal government, would become an authoritarian, a tyrannical, tyrannical entity. And those fears were again uh, expressed in the in the 1950s when the and the 1960s when the European Union came into being, uh, 
And yet it, it, it did not happen in either case. And I think partly because both the European Union and the United States of America in its federal uh, vision um, were firmly anchored on the rule of law. Uh, they involve um, a, a separation of powers, as you indicated. And I think that provided that we take those precautions, you know, there is no reason why greater international cooperation and the ultimate emergence of some kind of global governance mechanism would necessarily result in tyranny. I think, uh, I think it, it's certainly something that we could guard against by, by um, you know, building safeguards within, within the system. Um, I'm also uh, fully aligned with your with your calls for uh, the development of a broader loyalty, a sense that it is not inconsistent to love one's country, but also to feel a member of the human family, especially especially in light of what we have learned in the last twenty some years, uh, following the mapping of the human genome, about um, the, the the sort of common genetic ancestry of, of the human race. You know, I think it was Professor Craig Ventier who, who put it very nicely 20 years ago when he said there is only one race, the human race. And that, that was the first lesson that they, they, they gleaned, you know, from the completion of the mapping of the human genome. Hmm. That's, thank you. That's brilliant. I mean, I used the term human race, but didn't really think at all about that, those DNA revelations. Yeah, exactly. I think it was the greatest insights that, one of the greatest insights that has come out of the, of the 20th century. Um, let me conclude, Tad, by asking you one final question. You have an upcoming second book on, on the making intended to introduce a broad audience to the idea of a world republic for the 21st century. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Uh, how are you framing these complex ideas for a general audience? And what do you hope will be the impact of this work? Well, th thank you. Very generous of you uh, to ask. Yes, this will be my second book, and I have been working on it for a number of years now. Um, it's about the history and future of the big idea that we've been discussing today. And history is one of the key components of what I'm trying to do. Um, you know, this is called the Global Governance Podcast, uh, Augusto, and, I, and I'm sure that many of your listeners, you know, they're already somewhat acquainted with these kinds of conversations. And yet I wouldn't be surprised if some of your listeners are like, whoa, the United States of the world? That's, that's something I have almost never heard anything about. And a gigantic ambition for this second book of mine is to uh, inform and educate people that it ain't Tad Daly's idea. <laughs> it ain't Augusto's idea. Um, these gr Some of the great thinkers uh, in the human history, and Dante is one of them. Uh, that, that's my most recent article, is Dante's uh, thinking directly about world government. Um, Rousseau also wrote about this, Jeremy Bentham, uh, William Penn, you know, people in America have certainly heard of William Penn. Uh, he was he was a, a world government advocate. Immanuel Kant um, in the 19th century, Tennyson, you know, arguably the greatest poet, English poet of the 19th century. Victor Hugo, arguably the greatest um, uh, French literary light of the 19th century, H.G. Wells, who I've mentioned. I mean, I, I, a big part of the book is just to really convey that the political unification of humankind as the solution to the problem of war is one of the great ideas in the history of political philosophy. And then in the book, I'm going to shift to really trying to convey what this idea is all about and uh, to, to get people to treat it seriously as an idea about the human future. Um, and let me tell a quick little anecdote about that. Um, uh, at the Rio Earth Summit in 1992, uh, George H.W. Bush was the American president and he showed up and he was harangued by a lot of environmental activists to do more, do more, do more uh, as they should have done and as, they, as was quite appropriate. And at one point, Augusto, he erupted and he said, I'm the president of the United States. I'm not the president of the world. 
and I'm going to do here what's in the interests of the United States of America. And it's easy to hear that anecdote and just say, oh, what, a, what an antediluvian, how primitive that is. No, he did, he, he's exactly right to say that because that's what his job is as president of the United States. We have policymakers whose raison d'etre, who, whose oath of office is to pursue the interests, the security of their political community. And I want to try to get through people's heads that we need to create mechanisms that, as I've said a few times in this conversation, Augusto, don't just seek to maximize the individual national interests of uh, particular nation states, but the common human interest and the global public good. Um, and, 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 and I will do that by just, again, really trying to convey to people that someday the human race can evolve beyond tribes with clubs, be evolve beyond having this forever arms race and really try to imagine the political, constitutional, and I would call it spiritual unification of humankind. And by spiritual, I don't mean anything religious. I mean that thing that we talked about five minutes ago, global citizenship and planetary patriotism and allegiance to humanity. I want for people to dream that someday we will live in a world where people see their primary, most living earthlings see themselves primarily, first and foremost, as earthlings. And maybe children all over the world will start off their day in school by saying, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of the world. So that's what I'm going to try to convey uh, in this book in hopes of really expanding the conversation beyond our tiny little circles and really try to captivate ordinary citizens with the idea of the unity of humankind. Thanks for asking. Thank you for listening to the Global Governance Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends and family. To learn more, please visit globalgovernanceforum.org and join the conversation. 